The Gaily Prophet operates under the assumption that you have read the books. If you haven't read the books, go and read them. Otherwise, you're going to be spoiled, and that's your choice in this world. Gay people love puns. I'm dead. <laughs> we have to stop this podcast. Well, this book causes Satanism. What is left for us to rant about? There is no nothing straight about plum velvet <laughs> you shouldn't have been drinking when i said that <laughs> monocles are impractical but hot i don't for a second believe that she is a straight person i mean i'm definitely here for bisexual Minerva mcgonagall let's talk about <laughs> harry potter Hello, and welcome to part two of our discussion of chapter 21 of Prisoner of Azkaban with special guests, Woke Doctor Who. Just a quick reminder that we did have some audio issues with this recording, so there are some points where the audio sounds a little bit weird, but, you know, please forgive us, we do have a technology curse. Welcome to the politics section, where we talk about things that are fucked up. (laughs) Toya, kick us off. Oh, Snape. Snape. (laughs) (laughs) He is a politics section unto himself. He is the thing that is fucked up in many ways. We've already talked about, you know, kind of how he's fucked up as a teacher. But as a person, it's interesting to me, and this is where I'm going to get into it, how he and Sirius kind of reflect each other in my mind. So Sirius, of course barely out of his teens because they were all very very young which we forget if you're just a movie watcher and a book and not a book reader you forget how young lily and james and sirius and lupin and all of them were during the first wizarding war okay so of course sirius is jailed when he's very very young maybe 21 years old you know based barely out of his teen years and kind of stops there. Like he doesn't mature any further than that. He's pretty much still a teenage boy in a lot of ways. And I think it's the same thing for Snape. Snape kind of stops maturing at that point and he doesn't go any further. He never deals with all of the, I guess the trauma of what happened to him in school, um, what happened to him at the hands of the Marauders the bullying that they inflicted upon him and instead of becoming a better person (laughs) instead of using that to make him not a bully to other people he in fact becomes a huge bully himself and it's worse because he's doing it to people who don't have equal power right he bullies children he bullies the people who are underneath him as his students and also underneath him in age and in maturity level. He argues with them as if they are peers. <laughs> like He talks to children as if they're on a level with him, as if they could, you know, do this witty repartee back and forth. That's not a thing that's happening <laughs> between a professor and their students. Sirius, likewise, has not grown up and it comes out a lot, particularly through his dialogue with Molly Weasley um, when she talks about how you think that Harry is James. You treat him as if he's your best friend when he is a child. He is young enough literally to be your child. And so we have these two kind of stunted baby men (laughs) fighting (laughs) each other. And so 
for me, the only difference between Sirius and Snape really is that Harry likes one and not the other. Sirius and and you know, all of the all of those of us who like to dig in and analyze these things talk a lot about um particularly which please shout out talk about <laughs> Harry as the unreliable narrator, right? And so we're seeing all of these characters through his eyes. And I'm thinking to myself, is Sirius really that much better? Then Sirius would never be unkind to a child. I don't think he would ever be unkind to a child, but he is horribly unkind to Snape. And for what, really? Like, what is the what is the actual reason behind why they bullied him when they were children? Other than he's greasy looking. It's because he is a baby Death Eater. He's he's an awful kid. Yes, he's like super super misogynistic and shitty towards lily he is like already aiming becoming a death eater while he's in school (laughs) even the scene where they like turn him upside down it's because he's about to cast a really bad curse at james like it's it's they remus compares it to harry and malfoy but the shit that snape is is doing to the marauders is like way more like dark arts than anything that Malfoy ever directs at Harry. Yeah, well, I don't think Malfoy, I would never compare Malfoy and Snape. I don't think that Malfoy is at the level of Snape. I don't think Malfoy is actually I mean, Remus just compares the relationship. Yeah, yeah, but I wouldn't even compare that because I don't think Malfoy is actually evil. I think he's just like a snotty little shit. But I don't think he's really like has, you know, evil and murder um in his in his heart i think the whole thing with him and harry is actually hurt feelings but that's <laughs> that's neither here nor there and sexual tension but whatever that too <laughs> but i mean yes. i've already told you what i think about the sexual tension between snape and sirius but yeah that i think that sirius has parts of him that are condescending and misogynistic as well i don't think that the, the difference is as big as we make it. I think it's a difference of degrees. I really do. So here, the th- the funny thing is, and Lark, to your point that you're making, I, I say to my friends a lot that, you know, if they're around someone that's kind of awful to them, usually someone they work with or someone in a position of power, like I get to hate them where they can't, you know, where the friend can't. And serious. I can so see that that's where he's coming from. Like, you're a tool, but my friend Lily can't hate you, so I'm going to do all the hating for her. And I'm going to take all the vengeance that she rightfully deserves to take on you because she can't or because she won't. You know, um, and so for me, like I, this is one of the things I love about uh, Sirius is like he's very revenge minded, and I kind of connect to that. Like, <laughs> I'm just like just thinking about him sitting there, like in Azkaban, just going revenge, revenge. <laughs> um, it's really how I picture him. Yeah, and so like I connect to the characters that do not 
like a world in which the bad people don't get their comeuppance, you know, um, and that's very much serious. Like, you know what? I'm just going to sacrifice myself if I have to go to jail, if I have to do whatever. That's fine because it's important to the world that this person get the their comeuppance, get what mm-hmm. they deserve. You know, and so I I love that this like righteous hammer of God is a character <laughs> or self-righteous hammer of God is a character in this book that is somehow Harry's godfather. Well, maybe that's why I don't like series because yeah. vengeance is just it eats it. like I can't stand it. I, I can't kind of stand that position. There's so many times where I'm like, I would be Molly or I would be Hermione in this scene like i would take that position which is grow up right (laughs) you are not a teenage boy with a teenage boy you two are not friends you are an actual father figure this is a child and we need you to grow up it is super relevant though that sirius was removed of the opportunity to to mature past 21 because he literally didn't have contact with another human being for the next 11 years whereas right. Snape made a choice yes, he to did. hang out there. And that's why in the degrees like Snape is always going to be worse because you have had that time to deal with this and you just did not. And not only did you not do it and you're not just visiting that on yourself, you're actually putting your nonsense onto other people and onto people who weren't a part of it. At least if he was just acting like an asshole towards Sirius, I could understand it. At least if he was just being horrible to Harry, it would be horrible, but I would understand it. Wait, Jesse, what were you going to say? Actually, I was going to jump in just to say that I think part of the Sirius-Snape dynamic is that Snape made that choice to be a fucking douchebag even back at school. Sirius grows up in the you know, conservative white supremacy-esque world of, like, pure bloods. And he rebels against it. And, I mean, to varying degrees, there's still a bit of that that lingers. I think that's maybe part of his, like, quick-to-anger revenge streak in him. But for Snape, he could have gone to Hogwarts and, like, you know, he could have, like, not gone down the path of trying to emulate this, like, bullshit, misogynistic, violent... I want to say racist, but you guys know what I mean. Like fascist, you know, fascist, yeah, fascist, kind of like pure blood vibe. But he does; he embraces it wholeheartedly. And it's like, dude, you didn't fucking need to do that. You could just be, you could have just like been a regular ass student and been like, fuck this noise. But he embraces it, and I feel like that is part of kind of. I feel like part of maybe what serious dislikes in Snape is the part of it where it's like Snape is just an acting the kind of the kind of like pure blood fantasy that Sirius is trying to like move away mm. from so intensely. Totally. Isn't he and just like the poor people who are voting, who vote for Trump to their detriment? Like he, right. he's that kind of person who wants to yeah, identify, yeah. you know, you want to identify with the pure blood um, <laughs> supremacist thinking. You want to, you want to think of yourself as one of those people. You want to identify with them. When obviously, and if you had any sense, <laughs> you would realize that what would make sense is to fight against that thing. Yeah, it's like the real enemy is pure blood supremacy in this world that everyone should be fighting against. But it's like, we don't see 
maybe any characters with their eyes on that prize. Because, um, you know, structural, the structural, you know, stuff is very hard to see. But, uh. Yeah. Okay. All right. To try to honor time, I feel like we could talk about this for literal ever. Yes. And maybe we can get y'all on for like a Patreon thing about this because that would be amazing. <laughs> um, but for this moment, Eugenia, what do you have first in the politics section? So. I I wrote a bunch of notes and then underneath it I just wrote in big letters misogyny. <laughs> so <laughs> can't wait to hear that. Yeah. So basically that entire scene in Madame Pomfrey's ward. And so the first half of the chapter, one of the things that Dumbledore that sa- said that stuck out to me was um you know, he's talking to Harry even though Hermione is there also and says, oh, I can't change the minds of men. And I started at that point taking stock of all the female characters in the room at that point. And I started getting really angry because one of the things that we were talking about, uh, we've been talking about a lot recently is JK's internalized misogyny. And it was so prevalent in this room that Madame Pomfrey is trying to do her job and literally save people's lives. Hermione has this like amazing tool in her in her back pocket and also her amazing brain and they get completely sidelined and and not just by Dumbledore like I actually see the the hand of the writer here like Mm -hmm. the person doing the sidelining is JK you know and it bugs the hell out of me because like and it even extends to once they actually travel to the past like Hermione literally got you to the past and now she doesn't get to do anything at all. Like, what? what is this? And it keeps coming back to the misogyny, the internalized misogyny that JK puts into her books. And it every single time I see it, and it, it, it was that moment of Dumbledore saying, I can't change the minds of men. And I'm like, oh, just men, you know? And so I had a little, like, I am no man, Eowyn from uh, Lord of the Rings moment there. <laughs> like, we can't change my mind either. So, uh, and it just, it bugged the hell out of me. And it it's one of those things where I hadn't really revisited the book since we sort of had this revelation about JK's massively internalized misogyny. But like to see it right away in the chapter, I was just like, oh God. So if I was to actually go through the rest of the books and read it with that in mind, would I just be like, you know what? I'm never touching these again. (laughs) It's possible. Yeah, it really is. Hermione is always, not always, but often relegated to the damsel in distress. You know, there are so many times where Hermione says, oh, yeah, you know, I'm smart, I'm clever, but, you know, what you're doing is more important. You know, the bravery of the boy is more important than the fact that I'm a literal genius. Um, Mm -hmm. And she's the one who takes him into the past, and then she becomes the one who has to be told to run and hide. You know, and he's the one who does all of the saving of everybody after she turns him into the past. And, you know, I saw, I read or heard or something, an interview with JK once where they said, you know, why would you write a series about a boy? And she made it sound as if, well, you know, that's what was going to sell. You know, if I wrote a story about a boy and she's a liar, she's a liar. (laughs) She wrote wrote stories about, she wrote these stories about a boy because that's who she thinks would be the hero of the world is a boy. And she sees herself as Harry Potter. Like, come on. Like, <laughs> you're an absolute liar. You can see the way you write the women in the story, the way mm-hmm. you treat them, 
and way, the way you allow the men in the stories to treat them what you think about women. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All, most of the women, especially in this whole chapter, they're just avatars. They're literally just to stand in for exposition or to stand in for um, someone for Harry to show his genius to, you know, and it's it's unacceptable like that. It bugs me so much and so like while i do love the time travel aspect of this chapter oh god i can't get over i can't get over how they go to the past where clearly hermione is the one that understands the dynamics of time travel and she's like what do we do oh no what do we do and i think that even the movie tried to correct some aspects of that you know because hermione got the moment where um you know buckbeak wasn't moving so she took the um the weasels or whatever that were handling handing hanging there and threw them up so he'd follow and then he she was the one who howled so lupin would get distracted and run off you know she had a lot more to do in the, the movies which is why I actually really love this movie out of all of them and it's just sort of like it shouldn't take a movie director to go let me correct all the social wrongs that happen in these books for kids like that shouldn't yeah. ever happen Hermione mostly just serves as like someone to put the brakes on Harry's behavior like that's her whole purpose here is to be like Harry don't be reckless Harry don't be reckless which is like really boring like that's a really boring way to write this chapter yeah and it's really stereotypical too because that's you know how we think how you know the 50s thought of the little wife that was always preventing the the man from going out and doing what he wanted you know and it's just so overly old-fashioned that it's just sort of like why is this in this book why why did we have to have this here yeah jesse what were you gonna say oh sorry i was gonna jump in just to say that uh me and lark always make a point to verbalize whenever in a chapter uh hermione or another female character is described as like saying something shrilly or another like really Mm. gendered way like the kind of ways in which society ascribed that the way that women speak so it's like nagging and like shrilly and like it happens a shit ton in these these books so far and it's just like oh yeah your uh internalized misogyny is really just not subtle at all not at all you know the the cleverest witch of her age spending her time doing emotional labor for boys you know (laughs) spending her time corralling boys and having to be the reasonable one and what comes up to me over and over again as i read the books is how many times hermione is referred to as being afraid of harry and it's just kind of brushed off like it says frequently that hermione tries to say something softly or she tries to say it calmly or her face looks frightened as she's talking to Harry. And so what kind of friendship is that where you're kind of afraid of this boy who you spend your life kind of ushering and making sure he makes reasonable choices and doesn't do anything wrong. It's an abusive relationship between Harry and Hermione to some degree. It just, yeah. Just keep your eye out for how many times. That's a really good point. Yeah. Holy shit. Ooh, all right. Um, <laughs> Jesse, what do you have here? Uh, my queen deserves better. Um, <laughs> I guess I will start off with circling back to Snape, which is 
The fact that Dumbledore is like, hey kids, uh, Snape is a more credible witness than you guys are. Which is like, Snape is the most biased, unreliable witness you could potentially have in this situation. Are you fucking kidding me? And it's like, and then he's like, oh yeah, like Lupin is the one who's not going to be believed. And it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Fuck the police. Like Lupin is the only one who I feel like would be able to give the like most even keel description of what happened in this evening. And I'm like, are you fucking shitting me? That's my first thing too, is like, no one's going to believe kids and no one's going to believe werewolves. And it's like, these are both populations of people whose voices deserve to be listened to and trusted. I think it's been established throughout the book that no one would believe Lupin, which I think is incredibly fucked up, but it's sort of a new addition of like, you're 13, so like your voices don't matter is sort of the first time we've been given this information of like, we don't trust kids to be able to like recount things factually, which is like really fucked up. Yeah. We should we should listen to kids and believe them. I think that's really important. And it's several of them. It's several of them. It's not just one kid telling this story. It's three kids <laughs> telling right. the same story. And they were all there the entire time. He came yep. in late and they would still believe him over the three children and the werewolf. Right. Came in late and then got knocked unconscious. So he was right. there for a very, very short period of the whole thing. You were out for a whole lot yeah. of it. How would you have any idea what was going on? Yeah. Okay. So my first, my first thing that hasn't been brought up yet is that Dumbledore says that Sirius hasn't acted innocent. And I'm like, when was Sirius given the opportunity to act like an innocent man? And what even would that look like in this world? Like, I'm sure no matter what, if you escape from prison, it doesn't make you look innocent. But like, he was never going to get out of prison for being innocent. So like, what does that even mean, I guess? And I just was like, this is really fucked up. It's very thin blue line. Yes. And it's, you know, Jesse, you said fuck the police earlier. And this this feels like another moment where Dumbledore feels less like educator and more like police officer in a bad way. It it really kind of disgusts me that the the idea of innocence here, um, when you have supposedly an incontrovertible judge of innocence or or at least judge of who should receive punishment in the Dementors, right? Like they kind of only have one setting, right? Mm -hmm. Is to uh, punish people who are bad in quotes. Right. And so this, this person escaped from them as well as a apparently unbreachable prison. And you're gonna sit there and say, well, there's no way he's innocent. Really? Really? You don't think that this could be in any way different? And it just follows along the lines of every, well, we got to follow the protocol sort of judgment that police officers do. And it's it's really, really disgusting, especially in in this time and like in this time and age or where like where we're at right now, societally, like to see this in this book. Yeah, it feels more than it feels to me like. Those people who, you know, when you find out the latest 
black person has been killed by a police officer, right? Mm -hmm. Who says, that's really sad, but what were they doing? If they had just complied, (laughs) you know, if they had just gone along quietly, this wouldn't have happened. And it feels Mm -hmm. very much that. Like, well, serious, it's very sad that you were locked up as an innocent man. But, you know, if you had behaved differently, perhaps people would think differently about you, you know? Right. Yeah. Serious, if he hadn't have been a race traitor, I mean a blood traitor, <laughs> maybe we would have. <laughs> you know, we weren't out here kicking it with werewolves. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Yep. All right. Uh, Toya, what's next? I think that's it for me for politics. All right. Uh, Eugenia? Okay. So I just wanted to point out that this this chapter is the one that mentions Hermione's white face. And it's it's so funny to me because uh, the moment was, I think, when Harry was trying to pull Buckbeak into the woods from Hagrid's, uh, I said office, from Hagrid's hut. And he wasn't coming. And so he looked back and sees Hermione's white face. And I crack up at how often (laughs) people use this as a defense for no Hermione can't be black and I'm like yeah because when I'm describing someone I know very well um, who's making a facial expression I describe them by the color of their skin like are you serious and more importantly no one in this series is ever described as white no. to talk about their skin tone nope. zero times because jk rowling very much writes white as the default yes like it's such bad reading yeah. to be like this is evidence that hermione is white like right you just you failed your your language arts class by yeah. reading it that way bad job yeah and you know for most people like when you turn and look at someone and they're scared of something people will say oh they look pale the color's gone out of their face so like that is another moment where i go jk is really just not that great a writer is she because right i mean but white as a sheet is a thing that we say yeah, a lot exactly about someone who's in fear exactly but white as th- white as a sheet is the term right like right. that's yes. the phrase yes. she just said white <laughs> face and i was like it was jarring when i read it too i was like he actually said white face what and so, yeah, like that was a that was a fun little political moment to come across in uh, in in that chapter. <laughs> yeah, I've had to I've had to assure white people that black people can be pale. I've had to assure them of that many times. Like, yeah, trust me, I've been a black person for forty two years. We can be pale. <laughs> <laughs> you probably know a little bit about black people. Just a little bit. Way, so Just a little like, bit. You know. We go pale. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> yep. Jesse, do you want to talk about our troll? So I think for the beginning, we're like, we're reading Hermione's black fucking deal with it. And someone on Instagram, maybe like last year, whatever, 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 what is time? I don't know. <laughs> someone created a whole Instagram account where the only image was a screenshot of that passage in the book about Hermione's white face. To try to convince us that we were incorrect. And it was like, LOL, no. <laughs> like, you went through all this trouble <laughs> for nothing? Because it's like, not ever going to change my mind? 
they came into our comments on like a bunch of different posts where we had either like images of Hermione where she was portrayed as black or it was like talking about something and we're just like just like in quotes just put like Hermione's white face and like that was their bio was just Hermione's (laughs) white face it was like honestly I feel like that was the moment where I was like we've made it we have made it as a podcast like you went to so much trouble thank you like this is so validating and also just so invested in having Hermione being white, which I'm like, yeah. you don't have anything better to really? do than that. Like that is your crusade in your life <laughs> is the whiteness of a fictional character. Like that's what you care about <laughs> enough to put that much energy in it. I mean, every time Eugenia and I talk about Harry Potter on the podcast, like th- there's at least once that I say Hermione is black, eat it. Like, like, I just, I'm just super loud about that, and I dare these folks. Like, I don't give a damn what you talking about. Hermione is black. For your little white face sentence, I can put the whole thing in there about how she used a smoothing thing on her hair. Like, bitch, that was a magical relaxer. Hermione is black. The Weasley boys have evidence of liking black women, okay? One black woman went between both of the twins, okay? And then Ron got with another one. There are now little ginger Weasleys with afros. Eat it. Like, I don't care what these folks think. Hermione is black. It is canon. And they can kiss my left ass cheek about it. (laughs) I just want to get that like embroidered on like a thing to put in my. (laughs) So our PO box is listed on our website. Listeners who do embroidery, you can send Jesse that whenever you're ready. Oh my god! I will. I will probably display it in my house. Needlepoint, uh, Hermione is black. Kiss my left ass cheek. <laughs> Someone is starting on it like the moment that they heard this happen. We have the best listeners. Uh, All right. Um, Jesse, what do you have? Um, I just want to touch base to make sure this isn't in anyone's correction, which is the fact that they don't use the pensive or truth serum to find out the truth of what's happening Uh, no it's not in mine at least all right cool um so this is the biggest takeaway i took from this chapter which is dumbledore is like yeah we really have no way to prove that your guys' story is true and that Sirius is innocent i'm like dumbledore you literally have a fucking pensive in your office y'all have magic snape has fucking truth serum in his fucking office are you fucking kidding me right now oh we're just gonna go off everyone's eyewitness testimony whatever no use fucking magic <laughs> <laughs> i'm like so just like angry to be like this isn't the mother world we have to fucking be like he said she said it's like no look in the fucking pensive you're gonna see everything mm-hmm. very clearly you know when it's doctored why are we even going through this bullshit wow i never thought about the use of the pensive I was going to say in corrections, but since you brought it up, like, I'll say it right here. The fucking time turner. Like, if you can go back three hours, how far can you go back? Like, we could just keep going back (laughs) until we got 
to the time where all of these things were supposed to have happened. And we could just stand off in the cut and witness. Okay, but in the books, unlike in the play, you can only go backwards. So whoever did that would then have to live through to the present to then vouch for Sirius's innocence. That would make that makes sense. That makes sense. That's a huge investment. Oh. Yeah, but I, yeah, that makes sense. I guess I didn't think about that with the time turner. But I never I never would have thought about the pensive at all. Although that is a that's just a gaping plot hole right there. Why they could mm-hmm. not have just gone into the pensive and witnessed. Well, I think wasn't the pensive didn't it make its first appearance in book five? So I guess maybe it's that JK didn't think of it yet. I'm like, yeah, it made its first <laughs> appearance. It would have existed. But yeah, I guess so. Yeah. 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 But I think I do. I do. I think you're right. Well, we know that I think you're right that she's not a good writer. But I think <laughs> like she tries to cover up plot holes mm-hmm. by, you know, writing in shit later on <laughs> to explain why that mm-hmm. could not have happened or, you know, that kind of thing. And then, of course, if you ask her, if you were to ask her about that at the end, like, OK, so if the pensive existed during Order of the Phoenix, why didn't it exist during Prisoner of Azkaban, right. and why couldn't they just have... Yeah. And thinking back, I think it was Goblet of Fire, but yeah, like, literally the next book, you thought of a, another plot device, i.e. magic, and you didn't think about it before. I think you're right that it's introduced in book four, and then they, again, don't use it at the end when Harry's like, Voldemort is back. Right! And then they spend an entire book being like, Harry, you're a liar. And it's like, wait, didn't, wasn't there this memory thing (laughs) that we just saw? Like, what, what's going on here? Yeah, and it's even shown in later books that it's really not, like, it's not easy to fool, right? Because with, uh, with Slughorn and his sort of falsified memory, like, it becomes really apparent that that's messed with. So, yeah, why aren't they always using it? Right. Or even, like, I mean, the ethics of truth serum, definitely something to be discussed, but it exists. Yeah. And you couldn't have been like, we're just gonna clear this up, right? Sirius would definitely have taken Verita Serum. Like, yeah, if they had said yeah. to him, you know, we'll give you some Verita Serum so that we can tell if you're lying about this Peter Pettigrew thing or about having, you know, been responsible for the deaths of all of these people, blah, blah, blah. He would definitely have said yes. Like, come on. Okay, so then there's no reason why they couldn't have used the Verita right. Serum. <laughs> <laughs> the the old the only thing I could say is that it would be on brand for the ministry to be like I actually don't want this to come to light. We're just gonna like kill this dude and like call it good, which is something the American government would do and have yeah, done. So I'm that's like exactly what I was thinking too. <laughs> <laughs> we know how Fudge is, so yeah. yeah. Anything yeah. he could do to sweep things under the rug and not cause issues is what he's going to do. Yeah, because if the truth comes because- out, you now have to admit that somebody has been in prison. For years, who was a completely innocent man, and what do you do yeah. with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, you can't just be like, "Our bad." All right, let's. I'm so excited. All right, welcome to the health and science section, where we talk <laughs> about magic and science and magical science. And today we're going to talk about sci-fi. So excited! I'm just so excited. <laughs> Um, can I, I really want to start by talking about the fact that 
Harry's Patronus is a bootstrap paradox. So Harry sees his Patronus before he casts his Patronus. Oh, right. Mm-hmm. So like which came first? Mm-hmm. Like the genuine form of his Patronus, which is a reflection of his soul, or like him seeing the Patronus and then like it had to look that way when he cast it, which I am just like so fascinated by bootstrap paradoxes. So I'm just like, want to talk about it. Yeah, I think, um, doesn't he mention that he doesn't know it's it was a, or isn't it mentioned that he doesn't know it's a stag until after he cats, after future Harry, three hours plus Harry casts it. But that is what he says, but he also describes it as galloping yep. and like he's looking at it as he passes out. Right. So even if he doesn't like, fully consciously clock what it is it walks right up to him Mm -hmm. like he saw that it was a stag right and it's funny so like we've actually talked um i think i mentioned this in the very early like in the intros but we've talked a lot about whether patronuses are a reflection of you or what you need you know Mm -hmm. and so harry's is very much the exception because when you look at um, everyone else's, they're a reflection of themselves. So uh, Hermione's is an otter, Ron's is a dog, um, Luna's is a rabbit uh, or a hare, I think. And then mm-hmm. like, I think Ginny's is a horse. And that, they track so much with who they are as people. And then suddenly, Harry's is a stag and suddenly Snape's is a doe. And it's just sort of like, you know, what does it take for someone to essentially have an aspirational or memory tied Patronus? And I think this, like, yes, I agree. It is a bootstrap paradox, but it's also like, I really, I want explained better the the psychology behind Patronuses because it could be either or. Because he was convinced that it was his dad casting the Patronus right. and then he casts it. So like fully what he's thinking about is his dad casting the Patronus in that moment. So like even just on that level, it's like this was preordained that right. this was going to be his Patronus. And really it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with like who Harry is on the inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, I guess I want to bring up whatever book it is when Tonks is really sad about Lupin being like, I'm too old for you, whatever. And then Tonks has what Harry doesn't pick up, but is very clearly a wolf Patronus that mm-hmm. everyone's like, yeah, it's weird that Tonks' Patronus changed. And I'm like, <laughs> so like they could change? Is it like connected to like what you need at the time or like what your like emotional state is? Because then in that case, it's it seems interesting that Harry's is always a stag. Mm-hmm. Like if your Patronus can change. And how do you even cast a Patronus that is something that's a reflection of your sadness? Which like we're going to have to talk about when Tonks' Patronus changes. We have been recording for an exceedingly long time. But <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> like that is like such a thing to go into. I think that's why I said in the beginning that I was like, fuck it. Like Patronuses are just whatever you want them to be at the moment. Because <laughs> that's kind of how like there is no set kind of Patronus protocol <laughs> in the books. It seems that everybody's Patronus kind of just does whatever the hell. And so, you know, if we're talking about aspirational, though, it makes sense for Harry's to be a stag because what does he want to be more in the world than his father, right? Like, right. he, his father is his hero, even though he's never met him. He doesn't know anything about him that he wasn't told by somebody else. Um, well, he met him, but he was a baby. And so, of course, 
if he thought of himself as the, you know, the hero of the situation and he has to be the conquering hero, he would imagine his father and he would imagine whatever his father would have done. But that makes me very sad for Harry. It's, you know, Harry doesn't get to be anybody who isn't James and Lily's child, you know? It, it's always brought up that he looks exactly like his father, except he has his mother's eyes. Like there's nothing in the world that he gets to be that's just him, <laughs> even to the point of his Patronus. Like even that doesn't come just from him. That is his father coming out in him again. Yeah, well, they say in, in psych and mental health a lot that trauma changes the brain, you know? And so um, they, it, it makes so much sense where, and this is where my background in, in neuroscience comes in, you know, like where where the Patronus seems to originate from is a lot of sense of self, you know, concept of self. Technology curse alert. Oh my goodness. All right. What else about time travel? Okay. Time travel. Is it my turn? <laughs> it is anybody's turn. Okay. This is a free for all, I think. Okay. Yeah, so um, time travel. So this chapter obviously focuses really, uh, really tightly on time travel. And um, one of the, the points that uh, it brings up is definitely um, what we call what they call the grandfather paradox of if you travel back in time and you kill your father, you will never ha or your grandfather, you will never have existed. So one of the coolest things I've read in like the past few whatever amount of time, because time is immaterial at this point, was a uh, recent study that came out of the University of Queensland that basically said that time travel is possible without the paradox because the universe is essentially deterministic. Uh, so if you were to travel back in time and let's say try to stop something from happening, you know, in the void that was created in that moment, something else would slot in there. And so like the example that they give in um, the article discussing it is um, if you were to go back and try to prevent um, patient zero from catching COVID, you may become patient zero yourself or someone else would. Because essentially it's all based on this mathematical model of called dynamical systems theory of essentially all of the factors around that moment in time, which is called a, a manifold in space, which is called the manifold, creates a space for that thing to happen. And so I go back in this um, to Harry's moment of who like who cast the Patronus, like who who was the one that did it? You know, if in that moment and I know it was made into this big hero moment for Harry, but if it wasn't him, like if he sort of sat there and just waited, something else would have happened because it already happened in the past. And so because it already exists in the past, there's something there that will have filled that in. And so it may not like, you know, we wouldn't have wanted Harry to miss out on seeing what his Patronus is and casting his first full bodied Patronus ever. But based on this latest like finding, something else would have happened there. And so the whole concept of this sort of grandfather paradox of being preventive of time travel, or, um, you know, at least theoretically for us in 
as emotional humans, it's something we don't want to deal with. The idea of us changing things in the past and disappearing off a photograph like in Back to the Future. It's essentially not like what has being shown now is that that would not be the case. I find this so validating because that's been my stance on time travel from like the moment I first thought about it. I'm just like, you can't change time because like time always happened the way that it happened, which like is a thing that I come back to over and over in Doctor Who where the doctor's always like, time can be changed. And I'm like, it literally can't. And your existence is only evidence of that. You're like, we can't interfere in Pompeii because like, this is a fixed point. And then it's like, oh God, I have to interfere to make the thing happen. And it's like, yes, because you always did did what you're about to do. Yes. Like you can't, you can't change it. Like what you are about to do is always what happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like the only reason Harry and Hermione can't interfere is because they didn't. Right. And that was a really like Doctor Who moment for Harry, too. Like, I think he's probably more like Rose than I think any anyone else in, in Doctor <laughs> Who. Uh, but yeah, Rose 100 percent would have done that. And like, you know, damn the consequences. I'm going to go do it and I'm going to go fix it. Um, and yeah, like if it wasn't him, it would have been somebody else. It would have been something else, you know. Right. And I that like it's actually I find it really reassuring because I'm like, this seems to go in a loop every single time of like, what is a fixed point and a fixed point? It seems defined by this theory is a thing will happen here that will make the thing you already saw happen, happen. Right. I swear every time we record or every time we have a deep conversation about stuff like this, I look at Eugenia and I'm like, I'm a little bit in love with you right now. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) I'm just sitting here like, oh, heart eyes. I'm a little bit in love with you right now. But yeah, that's so so interesting to me because one of the things I love about the series is the idea that all of this could have been Neville Mm -hmm. so that you know Harry is the chosen one but the only real reason he's the chosen one is because Voldemort chose him like he chose him to be the one that he did all of this stuff to which then set off the entire everything that comes afterward right all of the stuff that happens in the series and before the series started and I always want to think about what would have happened if he had chosen Neville to be the one that he tried to destroy. What would have happened and how would all of that have played out, you know? And at the end, I always say that Neville is the conquering hero. I always think of Neville as the conquering hero of of the entire thing. When you get to the final scene and the war and the battle and everything happens and Neville kind of comes into his own and becomes this hero in his own right. And I always think to myself, what if that one little choice had gone in the other direction? How would all of this have gone? And I guess maybe the theory you're talking about is saying like, well, it wouldn't have, like something would have caused, would have caused Voldemort to choose Harry or Harry would have become the chosen one eventually. But I think that's part of what I love about the idea of time travel is that the idea that one choice, the one thing we do sets off all of the rest of history. You know, what is what is that, the butterfly effect or something yeah. that, you know, it's that one tiny, tiny little thing that then creates how the world goes. 
And so like, what would this have been if Neville had been the chosen one and how would that have played out? I love that you bring that up because I feel like in whatever book we find that out, I became immediately consumed with the idea about what if Neville had been the chosen one. Because I feel like it would have changed a lot, but then potentially not changed some things at all. And it's just, it's just like, it's such a, like an interesting thought experiment. And even the fact that Neville isn't, doesn't end up being the chosen one, he still ends up being looped in to the yep. quest to like defeat Voldemort anyway, you know? And so, yeah, like what if Neville became the chosen one and then Harry still would have been like, well, I can't just let, Voldemort this like terrible fascist like run free in the world and of like gotta help so it's like yeah like it's it's very plausible that Harry still would have been just as wrapped up in this as like Neville is involved yeah I mean Neville even says in that final battle right when he does think that Harry is dead you don't think that that's the end of it right <laughs> like somebody is going to step into that void that Harry's death leaves and will then become the chosen one who will defeat you and he was prepared to do that. Like, and so I guess now, Eugenia, like you've given me something to kind of think of when I read that scene or when I see that scene and think of it. Like, yeah, okay, so what if Harry had actually died, right? If Harry never comes back, he's dead, that's the end of it. Who would have, what would have happened there? Because the end result is always going to be the destruction of Voldemort. Yep. What would have happened right. there to figure that out, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if it seems like, so Voldemort chose Harry, but, like, something still stepped in to take Neville's parents out of the yep. picture. So if Voldemort had chosen Neville, something would have come in yep. and taken Harry's parents out of the picture. Right. So it still would have, like... And so would, it, st would it still have happened this way, you know, anyway? Yeah. yeah. It's like they are sort of just already both the chosen one. Yeah, because Neville's along for the ride the whole time anyway. Um, mm -hmm. Of course, he doesn't run headlong into things the same way <laughs> that Harry does. But the entire trip that these kids take across these books, Neville is a part of that from the very beginning, even if we think he's on the sidelines. Even in the very first book, you know, there is mention of his bravery and how he stood up to his friends and all of that. Yep. And so, you know, he's always there kind of participating in it from the very beginning. Yeah, and he's essential yeah. to it in many, many aspects because if he hadn't done that, like would if he hadn't done that in book one, what would Harry's of Harry's actions have been in later books of like standing up for what you believe in, you know? Yeah. Oh, that gave me chills a little bit. <laughs> I know I got chills when they got chills and I'm like <laughs> I, I just have a lot of feelings about Neville. That's all. Me too. Yeah. Oh, Neville. So much. He's he's a love. He yeah. really is. So the consensus is this is always going to be a closed yep. loop time Definitely. travel excursion. Definitely. And it's yeah. not weird, but it's interesting to me that Harry is the only one who's allowed to quote unquote break time or whatever, and nothing catastrophic happens, right? Because Hermione says to him, "We can't be seen." by ourselves it's going to cause some huge catastrophe we're going to kill ourselves or somebody like we're going to think we're going mad it's going to be a huge thing and harry literally does that so he does see himself from both sides right and nothing catastrophic happens it's just the patronus and then he becomes the you know the hero of the moment and all of that 
And so he's just kind of proof of the theory that, you know, catastrophe does not have to happen (laughs) if you break into time or if you travel back in time, that you can do that without it causing conflama and death and (laughs) destruction. Yeah, and it it sort of speaks to how lucky Harry is, I guess, in some ways, and lucky, (laughs) you know, um, because when he first saw himself, he didn't think it was him, right? Like he didn't, oh, kitty. Um, Sorry, distracted. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, this is Rex coming to join us. Hi, Rex. Um, But yeah, he didn't think it was himself. And so, but if he did, I mean, I doubt that there, I mean, so that entire scenario though, whoever he saw there, he wasn't ever going to think it was himself, right? And so that's lucky, you know? There there was no, like, he was a little below conscious thought at that point, right? He'd already been attacked by the Dementors. He was trying to protect Sirius. And so he kind of lucked out, I guess, in, in a sense, because he would have never had the uh, wherewithal to say, oh, that's me over there. What the heck is happening, you know? And so he lucked out, definitely, but... Yeah, like it, it's it's hard to legislate an exception is all what's something I say a lot. <laughs> and that's uh, when you talk about the types of people that may be seeking time travel, I'm pretty sure the very ambitious and the very dangerous sort of fall into that category, um, you know, at least disproportionately so. And so I think that's who the rules are made for. <laughs> yeah, this is really like maybe the biggest instance of when Harry looking exactly like James like yeah. comes into play in a major way mm-hmm. and it's helpful. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's really really helpful. It's like you really save yourself from murdering you. Yeah, cuz you're not going to see the color of your eyes across, you know, from that far distance. So. I don't know. I also feel like Hermione definitely the argument feels really confusing to me because it's just like she knows that she has a time turner. Hermione would not kill her double. She also would stop Harry from killing his double because she would have been like, it's cool, I have this thing called a time turner. That's going to be us from the future. So like, I don't know, the whole the whole time that I'm reading that chapter, I'm just like, but is it a problem? Yeah, Um. and you know, with this this new theory in mind, like because the universe is deterministic, um, because you didn't kill yourself in the past, you won't be dead in the future. <laughs> right. So it's just kind of because it didn't happen, it won't happen kind of thing. So, yeah, I mean, I feel like the real argument that Hermione should be making is like, we can't see ourselves because we didn't see ourselves. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, it already happened and you remember it. So like, we just have to do it that way. Yeah. Um, we're creeping dangerously close to yeah (laughs) luckily is there anything else that anyone wants to bring up before we wrap up oh 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 so it's just one theory that i have and it's just a thing that works for me because of my anxiety and because i use these books as comfort reads which i decided earlier was foolishness (laughs) but one of the things that i think lots of people think about right is the the Dementors as being representations of depression and anxiety. And so because I am a person with diagnosed anxiety, because I live with anxiety, 
you know, the Dementors are always very interesting to me, but not only the Dementors themselves, but how you deal with them. And so what I find very interesting is how dealing with the Dementors is equivalent to how I deal with anxiety, right? And so to deal with Dementors, there are three things that you do. You, do, you have the chocolate, right? To deal with like the effects of the way they make you feel. You have to bring up that happiest memory, right? In order to be able to get a Patronus, in order to be able to produce a Patronus. And then you have the Patronus. And so in my mind, the equivalence to those things, chocolate is the medicine that you would take to kind of deal with the way those things show up um, in my body physically, the what the thing, the, how they make me feel in my body. And the happiest memory is my reminding myself that joy exists and that I felt it before and I can feel it again. And then the Patronus is the reaching out. It's the reaching out for help, to have somebody who gallops to your rescue, somebody who stays beside you and fights it with you. And so with all of the nonsense <laughs> that is associated with Harry Potter for so many different reasons, primarily because of J.K. Rowling, the Dementors and the fact that they can be fought is a great reminder to me personally of how I can fight through the worst of times in depression and anxiety. And so right now, given <laughs> the state of the world, it's something I hold on to a lot. And so there might be a very weird thing to want to read about Dementors um, in a time when we are being beset <laughs> by depressing things and things that can cause anxiety on every side. But I actually find it extremely comforting. So I just wanted to offer that to listeners in case that will help you at all. There are ways to fight off Dementors and there's ways to fight off depression and anxiety all the time. So there you go. Aww. That's, That's really it. Beautiful. Aw, Toya. <laughs> That's such a great way to end this episode. <laughs> yep. You and she always does this too. Like there's always like a <laughs> uh, uh, like final parting moments with Toya on our <laughs> <laughs> episode <laughs> where we both start to cry we're like well that's yes. it never mind that's the end <laughs> no this, this this is great especially because daylight saving time oh. is essentially dementia yes. season until fucking may hold on everybody <laughs> so on that wonderful note about your podcast and also the way that you uh, are good at bringing joy into the world can you folks tell us about where our listeners can find you Yes. <laughs> so our um, our site is wokedoctorwho.com, spelled out. They can also find us on uh, Twitter at wokedoctorwho. And then they can listen on any place you find podcasts. We even have an Instagram. We don't put a oh, whole yeah, lot of stuff on it. We don't use it very well. We don't though. put a whole lot of stuff on it. But if you want to look at our faces, you can go yeah. and see. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much for joining us. This was incredible. Thank you for this having us. This has been us. amazing. Thank you guys so much for inviting us. We have we are so excited to have been able to do this. Yes, definitely. This is a joy. Yeah, this is so much fun. <laughs> Yay. 
The Gaily Prophet is produced, mixed, and edited by me, Lark Malachi Gray. You can find us all over the internet at The Gaily Prophet. That's our website, our Patreon, and our social handles. Speaking of Patreon, if you want to ask for a subscription to our Patreon for whatever gift-giving holiday you celebrate or gift it to someone, it is now easier than ever because you can sign up for a year's subscription all at once. So head over to patreon.com slash thegailyprofit to do that. Uh, and when you join, you will immediately get access to over 100 offerings, including our new Buffy the Vampire Slayer podcast, We Are the Gayers. Speaking of cool subscription things that you can join, we have a sticker club, which is really exciting, where every month you will get a different queer or witchy or funny or often all three sticker in the mail. They're very, very wonderful. If you are looking for ways to support us that don't involve money, you can leave us a five-star review and tell all of your friends about the Gaily Prophet. Maybe start having Gaily Prophet listening parties. And uh, check out Escape from Reality. That's escape spelled with a gay in the middle. It's our podcast about Carry On by Rainbow Rowell. It's super fun and really good. And if you haven't read that book, maybe that's uh, something you should put on your to-do list for the next little while so that you can enjoy that podcast because it's fucking wonderful. Our show art is by Theo Julian Forrester. Our spoiler warning is by Sarah Sarwar. The music and our theme song is by Kevin McLeod. And until next time, time is fixed. <laughs>